0: Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm Brett Chisholm. And on today's episode, I share my harrowing tale of fire in the sky and the explosive birth of the little airplane that could, Delta Tango. On the content circuit, Brett talks about weird houses, I guess. They're homes. All right. And we once again discuss the epic story-based pandemic game called Pandemic. Then Brett tries to convince us that we all hate money, in his detailed and intricate deep dive into the Happiness Lab podcast, starring his girlfriend, Dr. Lori Santos. Sadness,
1: <sighs> I blow you away with wind. If you didn't get that reference, check the show notes.
0: Movie shows and video games, podcast books and their acclaims, let their favorite content become
1: yours. And it
0: starts right now. So how you
1: been this week, Brett?
0: I feel like I haven't talked to you in forever.
1: <laughs> I, I've been pretty busy, actually. So I'm staying at my dad's, as you know. Um, well, Bree and I are officially moving back into the Airstream. And uh, so we're kind of wrapping up projects here, making sure the house that we've been staying in is clean. And I've been cutting a lot of wood, been clearing wood on his property, which is... It's actually really fun, but it's also hard work. It's like, it's man work. Yeah, I wouldn't go that far because I my my stamina is. I mean, it is a man's work, which is why I don't last very long doing it. <laughs> <laughs> you're more uh, you're more tuned up for sitting in front of the computer and you, recording your voice these days, right? Right. I, uh, you know, and it, it just like works the weirdest muscles, and I feel like I. I feel like I have built some stamina at, you know, after like the third or fourth or fifth day, you know, you're, you're going to build some stamina, but I still get like soreness in my thumb or like my forearms get sore. I don't know. I, I kind of want to get this chainsaw tuned to before we head out of here for my dad. So it just, it makes a big difference. He's got two chainsaws and one of them just does not cut very well. You probably have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? You don't have a whole lot of trees to cut down in your neck of the woods. Uh, we live right in the middle of a cul-de-sac,
0: <laughs> in the smack dab in the middle of a city. We have no trees to cut down. But we now, did, What about uh, your zombie apocalypse tools? Do you have a chainsaw in there? I've got a, I've got a hatchet, and we used it recently. We uh, remodeled our, our house and changed all the doors out, and then. I took all the doors out in the backyard and just chopped them all up with a hatchet cuz they were like these really <laughs> crappy cardboard doors that came with the house. So I get
1: my own little chopping wood experience urban style. Nice. Wow, card cardboard doors. It's really a step up from those paper curtains that you used to have yeah, separating your rooms.
0: <laughs> yep. You know, it's not a zo- it's not zombie proof,
1: but for sure they'll yeah. do in a pinch. Yeah. It's not it's like barely uh anything proof really a breeze will tear those paper walls open they won't keep water out that's for sure (laughs) but yeah it's it's been fun man i mean i'll tell you the uh the 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 thing about a chainsaw is when you're first starting out and you're not like tired and sore from doing it for a couple hours it's it's pretty amazing how much wood you know these, these aren't like living trees these are trees that fell down that blew down and you know so it's just kind a of a tree murderer right exactly i just want to make that clear that's for good. all the tree hugger listeners that we have um but i mean it, it's when you first start out and i mean you just start going through these things man and it's it's very very satisfying actually it does it does kind of awaken the lumberjack that lives in us all i grew up in texas so I have chopped down trees
0: with hatchets, with chainsaws, with guns, just <laughs> shooting at the same tree over and over all day until it falls over. That's I've a my, very Texas past experience. Oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah. Got a lot of, destroyed a lot of trees in my day. I've
1: done my part to prevent the world from breathing. <laughs> very nice. Didn't you also have an empty pool there too that you'd blow things up in? <laughs> Yeah, it's I mean, very I'm pretty Texas sure this would be
0: uh, uh, it'd probably be illegal these days. But we did have an in-ground pool that my parents got tired of maintaining, so eventually we just turned it into a blasting pit. This was pre-9/11. We were not training to be like homegrown terrorists or anything. We were just interested in blowing up TVs, and so yeah, just, we turned just this, some Texas kids exactly turned the real yeah. this really nice pool that like brought us so much joy for so many years into just this like blown out just fire scorched hellhole in the backyard <laughs> it was it was so much better than a pool
1: yeah that i uh yeah i mean what can you do in a pool you can swim you can drown that's it that's about it yeah <laughs> <Drowned>. <laughs> that's it. yeah those are the two things you can do in a yeah. blasting dr- pit
0: you can blow up tvs you can blow your right. fingers off so many things <laughs> so many options
1: <laughs> so many things um yeah. So, what'd you bring for the off-top? Well, we before we get into today? that, let's, yeah.
0: uh, for anyone that's new, let's just give a, a quick uh, rundown of how this show works. Um, Brett and I love content, as our listeners know. If you're new to this whole thing, Brett and I are certified contentologists. We are experts in entertainment content. And so, each week, we just bring something that we love a movie, book, a video game, something like that, and we deep dive into it. And that's pretty much the idea of this show.
1: That's right. And we also like to start out with a little bit of an off-top or off-topic discussion. And this can be anything that really interests us. Um, Just recently we covered UFOs, big changing uh, developments with that. Uh, Josh talked about getting his COVID test So, you know, I think anything that might be relevant or applicable, he passed. Yeah, thank God. Big time. So does that mean you're immune, or do we not really know yet? Nope, that means I haven't had it yet. Oh, that's... (laughs) So I just haven't been exposed. I I clearly uh, have watched too much news, and now I don't know what anything means anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, before we get into the off-top also... uh,
0: I also like to thank everyone that's listening, and also ask our audience to please share the show with your friends. We are very early in uh, in the lifespan of this show, and so each and every one of you sharing it with someone is the most important thing you could do to help us out. You so, could say we're like little tiny podcast babies. Exactly, we were just born, when just sexy voices <laughs> came out of the womb, talking into well, the mic. So for the off-top this week, I kind of teased it last week. Um, Today, I wanted to tell a skydiving story. Oh, that's right. I have a lot of skydiving stories. I mean, I could tell like something upbeat or fun or like a a real horn tooter, but (laughs) nobody (laughs) tooting my own horn. Nobody wants to hear that shit though. So (laughs) what I'm going to tell is a story about the time I was in an airplane and the engine exploded mid-flight. Have I told I, you the
1: story, Brett? You know, I don't think you have. I, I can't believe that I don't know this because, oh, man, man I'm, sure we'll ta- I'm sure we'll talk in a later episode about some of the crazy s- skydiving incidents that happened when you and I were in free fall together because we got a good one for that. But it, We do have some good ones. We'll tease that now. Maybe we'll talk about it some the, other day. The fact, the fact that you have an insane... Uh, skydiving story like this of this caliber and I've never heard it and I can't remember it for the life of me is just a testament as to how many crazy things have you've experienced skydiving. Well, I am. I'm really excited to tell you this story then.
0: And before I get into it, I don't want, you know, there to be any misconceptions about the safety or lack thereof in skydiving. I mean, relatively speaking, skydiving has a fantastic safety record it's an average of three million jumps per year, something like that, and on average only about twenty deaths per year. So the skydiving rate of death is about point zero zero seven five per one thousand. That is way better than coronavirus. It's
1: way better, yeah. And That's it's way more fun. It's like we're all skydiving in the nineteen forties right now. Yeah. That that was in World War Two. Right. So I'm sure it had
0: a much, much worse survival rate then. But um, most of those deaths and really most of the injuries in skydiving are self inflicted. You know, it's not people's chutes, parachutes not opening. Um, It's not some random gear failure. You know, it's usually people crashing their perfectly functioning parachutes, piloting error. And as far as extreme sports goes, it is. Very approachable, and it is possible to do it safely. But every once in a while, something does happen that reminds you that you are tempting fate just a little bit. You're riding the edge of physics. You're playing in a place that humans were not born to inhabit. And that's you know that's pretty much what this story is. And it all kind of centers
1: around this one airplane we were jumping out of out in uh, Scout of Santa Barbara. Really quick when you said... Uh we're not born into this, it kind of reminds me of that um, sort of annoying saying that I hear all the time. You ready? I was born ready. No, you weren't born ready to do anything.
0: You're a human. <laughs> the only thing you were born ready to do is have someone else support your own head because your neck isn't strong enough. Exactly. Yeah. So I was not born ready, but <laughs> I did I did get ready over you know 20 years or so of growing up. That sounds about right. So I wasn't I, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to mention where this happened. I mean, I already mentioned it Scott of Santa Barbara, but then I found a news article, and they just like totally put this incident on blast. So I was like, yeah, I might as well give all the details, and we'll <laughs> link that article also. But this was uh, February seventeenth, two thousand ten. I was twenty I was twenty nine years old when this happened. Um, the location, uh, of Santa Barbara in Lompoc, California. Actually you came out and visited beautiful me place. We jumped there a little bit. Yeah. We did, yeah. The drop zone was beautiful. The city of Lompoc <laughs> was pretty rough. Gorgeous. Dude, the uh, the city just has a little bit of color commentary on the city. Every I lived about 2 blocks off of the main strip through town. We were just right in line with all the uh, fast food restaurants and they each Christmas all these fast food restaurants would get robbed because, I guess wow. I mean the the city was pretty poor and the, the restaurants. I you know it's probably people who are like wanting to buy Christmas presents or something. And all of these restaurants would get robbed every single
1: year around Christmas time. It's very sad. Oh, that's and, terrible. It was near a uh, military base, wasn't it? An air force base. Yeah, that actually plays into uh, into the
0: story. Okay. Um. The uh. Yeah uh vandenberg air force base is just a few miles off the end of the runway um the house i lived in just one more bit of color commentary because it's not important to the story but it's pretty interesting we would get these knocks at like three in the morning sometimes just like randomly on the door and we'd peek out and there'd be like some sketchy looking dude standing at the at the door i mean i I feel like we must have moved into like a meth house or something and it was all in all very sketchy. But the drop zone, absolutely gorgeous. It was about, I think about three miles off the coast. And uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base was on the coastline. So as you would take off from Scott of Santa Barbara, you would climb to altitude, flying out west towards the coastline. You'd overfly the prison because Lombo- Lompoc is famous for its prison. So you'd That's, be flying over the yeah. prison yard. <laughs> Perfect.
1: Yep. Um uh, and then I think, I think our long poke listeners just unsubscribed to us. <laughs> oh
0: man. <laughs> well, that's, we, we love to win you guys back. Yeah. Your drop zone is beautiful, <laughs> but, uh, off the end of the runway, just right on the coastline out at the edge of Vandenberg air force bases property is a 15,000 foot long runway. I believe it was like an alternate site for the space shuttle landing. Like if, depending on the rotation of the Earth, if they were not over Cape Canaveral. I believe they could land at Lompoc. I'm not sure if it ever, was ever used that way, but, I mean, that's why this runway is, like, almost three miles long. Yeah. So we took off uh, this morning on the S- February 17th, 2010, about 1140. So we were in a Cessna 206, and if you're not familiar with that, that's a single-engine piston plane. It holds a... Uh, a pilot and then five jumpers. And in skydiving, you know, you a typical like commercial operation you'll have a tandem which is the tandem instructor instructor and the passenger and the passenger strapped to the instructor's chest. So this jump had two tandems, so that was four people, the two instructors, two passengers and then myself and I was flying tandem video. And when you're flying tandem video, you climb on the outside of the plane, the tandem jumps out and you kind of lead them out of the plane. You fly around. You shoot video and pictures. You, like, grab the student's hand and do all this cool stuff in free fall. It's really awesome job. So I'm, like, filming the, uh, you know, filming the student's reactions as we take off. We're climbing out to the west, and at about 2,000 feet, the entire plane just does this, like, it, it feels like it hits a speed bump. It just drops out of the sky and then pops back up, probably, like, 20 or 30 feet altitude difference and then this big black cloud of smoke just starts shooting out the right side of the plane and it's we could see oil like trailing down the, the cockpit glass and you could see oil hitting like the wing strut and then the pilot turns around and he goes we're going down <laughs> and that's the, the last thing you ever want to hear your pilot say i mean, like, <laughs> you could usually the pilots are like, they're super calm, cool and collected. And you could tell that he was like, this is not something I've ever experienced before. So as soon as he does that, I just like, first thing I do is like peek my head around the corner a little bit to see how much I can see out the door, see if I can get anything on video. And then look back into the cockpit. I can see more oil coming up over the glass. And then I'm just like hunkered down, like, okay, trying to decide, am I going to ride this thing out or am I going to jump out? And so we're at about 2000 feet, which is pretty low. Uh, but it's still within like emergency exit parameters. You know, you can safely exit a plane down to around 1500 feet. So I looked down and I realized we're over Vandenberg air force base. And I had been there a few times, like going at, just taking tours of the base, walking around the trails. And I remember, when you didn't you tell me about around, your,
1: uh, your your blasting pit in Texas, did you?
0: I did not bring that up. I don't think they would have let us on the. Yeah, <laughs> they probably wouldn't let us on the base. But blasting pit that does come into play because on <laughs> Vandenberg Air Force Base, all over the place there are these signs that say "Stay on the trail, unexploded ordnance," because I guess this the base used to have like firing ranges, and there'd be like I don't know cannonballs or whatever the military shoots these days that yeah, hadn't I'm pretty, blown sure up. Can-
1: I'm pretty sure it's cannonballs i think that's yeah. right that sounds yeah. right yeah
0: and so i'm debating like do i jump out of this airplane and risk landing in like a minefield or do i stay with the airplane and then i check my altimeter and realize that we've lost about 700 feet of altitude and i'm like all right i guess that makes that decision for me we're probably too low for an emergency exit now so at that point just like Seatbelt on, crash position, ready to ride it out. While all this is going on, the pilot has called in to Vandenberg Air Force Base to declare an emergency. And he told us later the first thing they told him was that you can't land here. We're doing tests of some sort today. And he was like, screw that, we're we're coming in anyways. Because I'm sure you know this from your time as a pilot. You probably know more about this than I do, but uh from what I understand, most small aircraft crashes happen when there's an emergency on takeoff, and then the pilot tries to turn around and get back to where they came from. Is that correct?
1: Well, the number one um, cause of fatal crashes for like a small plane they call CFIT, controlled flight into terrain. So it's actually flying into... Uh, instrument conditions clouds essentially and either not being properly trained or not having their instrument rating so it's you know that's the majority um with with like a skydiving operation you know you're typically hopefully not flying into um instrument weather but um yeah in this case i'm not really sure but if you would declare an emergency i mean Anything is fair game. Of course, there's designated airspace where civilian pilots, you can't just putz around over an Air Force base. But if you declare an emergency, you have the authority to um, do anything basically in in the realm of trying to get your passengers and the plane safely on the ground and not injure anybody on the ground. I mean, that's... But you, you don't know. want to turn around and go back, right? Especially at
0: low altitude like that. Go back to where, like, like where, to where we came from. Like, we would not want to flip a one eighty and go back. No, That'd be a bad idea.
1: No, absolutely not. And I mean, you know, your priorities in, in like an emergency landing are. It's very similar to a skydive. Like, you have certain priorities, and that is to aviate is number one. I mean, it's you know you're trying to uh, keep you keep airspeed so you're not going to stall or not go into a spin low to the ground and, you know, your everything else is tertiary to that. And uh, it, no, just because some, you know, some controller at an Air Force base said you can't land here. It's an emergency. You're not going to listen to that. <laughs> you're going to do everything you can if, you know, especially if you have a giant runway that's available below you. I mean, you know, screw, screw the Air Force guys. <laughs> like that's where they- you're putting the plane down. They gave him a hard time, and that's, that's what he crazy. said. He was like,
0: screw that. So he starts diving the airplane to try to pick up some airspeed, and the whole time he's diving, more and more black smoke until eventually look out the front and get a peek at the propeller, which is usually can't see it, and notice that it's just completely stopped. Like the, the plane is just completely dead stick. So he dives down. Planes out over the runway, and now he's just kind of—he's just a glider, and you could tell that he's kind of like having some issues maneuvering it. But he does this amazing job of setting us down on the ground. We we kind of bounce a few times, and then as soon as all three wheels are solid on the ground, I whip the the skydive door open, which is like a big door that takes up like almost the entire wall of the plane. And then I'm watching the you know watching how fast we're traveling down the runway we slow down as soon as i feel like i can safely get out i just jump out cuz i don't have a tandem passenger with me i duck under the wing and just kind of like run over and just get in the ditch cuz i'm like i don't know if this plane's going to explode again so <laughs> i'm out of the plane now eventually the plane taxis to a stop passengers get out everybody's just kind of like you know a little shaken up about it and then the
1: first yeah, you, had, you know, so you had a bunch of tandem passengers on there
0: yeah, two there were two tandems wow, on there. Did and anyone myself.
1: did anyone bail before this happened, or did everybody stay on the plane? Well,
0: no, we all stayed on the wow. tandems. It was too low for them, and right. like I said, the unexploded ordinate, ordinance issue was keeping me on the plane. So the uh, the fire department shows up <laughs> and they realize like, okay, nothing's on fire. And then the uh, military police show up with dogs and they do like this this whole like walk around sniff. I guess they're, I mean, they're probably looking for bombs or things or maybe drugs who knows what they're looking for but they do this this big elaborate check out of the plane and then they take all of us and we go do we're probably detained on the base for like three hours while they're doing background checks on everyone until eventually yeah it was crazy man it was like a serious thing we were were not supposed to be there but we were all just happy to be alive so right (laughs) We were just like, uh, you know, me,
1: I was you're like, like guys, seriously, here we're, ob- we're obviously not terrorists like we <laughs> were. You, you guys see, are all in is- your like sports skydiving. They're like, wait, you said something about a pit back in Texas. And <laughs> like, oh, you're a fan of the <laughs> yeah, podcast. <exactly. laughs> oh, why did they bring this up? <laughs> um, eventually,
0: we were escorted off
1: the base and then they bring the plane they, back. Yeah. So they just left, you know, left the plane there. And- yeah. Yeah. Wow. It was there
0: for a while, but then eventually, you know, I think it was maybe the next day it comes back, and the plane looked like a hand grenade had gone off inside the engine block. Wow! On the right, on the right side, there was a hole that was probably like this—the size of my head. It was this big, giant, like I don't know, it was maybe eighteen, twenty inches. How big is a head? <laughs> uh, it was—it was gigantic hole. And then on the other side, there were all these like little pinholes where it looked like pieces of something had got shot through the engine block. So this engine just completely exploded. And never really I never got an explanation of why this happened. Uh the engine only had about eight hours of flight time on it. It was a brand new engine. Oh yeah, my this is,
1: gosh, that's crazy. I was just about so to ask how well the plane was or I mean was this the kind was, of drop down that like kept up with its maintenance, uh, you know, because I mean, there's so the FAA is so strict um, as just like a regulatory agency. But, you know, <clears throat> if there's any kind of commercial air, air airplane related operation that might, um, you know, not be on top of their maintenance, it's, it's not going to be an airline, right? It's not going to be an international cargo operation. The, the people that might kind of slide, slide through the cracks a little bit are going to be drop zones or maybe like some fishing guide in Alaska or something like that. I mean, they weren't skimping on their
0: aircraft at all. in fact, they just bought this aircraft with a, you know, brand new engine in it. So this took all of us by surprise. What it uh, I'm sure did. what basically <laughs> came of this is we ended up giving this 206 a uh, nickname and we called it uh, the death trap. But since we couldn't say that in front of customers, we just started calling it Delta Tango. Yeah, so anytime nice. they were trying to get us to jump the 206, we're like, oh man, jump at Delta Tango again. The owner did not like that. He was. <laughs> if he heard you say Delta Tango, man, he would get so pissed. So, wow. moral of the story is, we did su- survive. It was a pretty crazy experience. Makes a great story. Um, yeah. It's not. It's not exactly a good representation of what skydiving is like, but skydiving does have some crazy stuff happen.
1: Well, I, I think it's, I mean, no one wants to hear about all the thousands of skydives you've made where, you know, nothing, went, it, nothing bad happened. Everything. It was actually really boring. I mean, skydiving can be boring, you know, like if everything goes well and it becomes routine, no one wants to hear about the thousands of jumps you made where nothing exploded.
0: It's never that's boring nice when you're doing it, but the stories, right. they don't right. make good uh, bestseller material. <laughs> right.
1: Man, that's crazy.
0: If you're ever out California way and you're ever jumping at a Scout of Santa Barbara, maybe avoid Delta Tango.
1: Delta Tango. Yeah. You'll be able to tell by the uh, blacks, black markings on the right side of the front. <laughs> inside
0: of the manifold for the engine <laughs> get a good look in
1: there i mean i i don't know what the uh what the stats are lately in skydiving but i i imagine there is uh, a pretty um l- decent i mean that's the wrong term but like a a, a not insignificant chunk of the skydiving fatalities are due to plane crashes. And uh, mostly because when you have, like, I remember a King Air, um, accident, I can't remember where it was, but it was, you know, shortly after takeoff and, you know, it, it has 20 people in it or 15, I guess a King Air doesn't hold 20 people in it, but you know, it has, it has a, a lot of people, whereas, uh, just one skydiver perishing doesn't happen very often. But one plane crash full of skydivers also doesn't happen very often, but it has a lot more people on it. So it kind of skews the statistics. But I'd be curious to know, you know, what that uh, what the numbers look like.
0: Well, luckily that doesn't think happen, happen you're very often. No, I mean... Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, that usually when a plane crash happens, it's extremely high profile and you don't hear about it too often. I mean, I'd say right. maybe once every five or six years you hear about a plane crash. But when you think about how many skydiving operation plane flights are happening, like the, the, the odds are still extremely low. However, that is, that is part of it. Like as a skydiver, that's a part that you really worry about because once you exit the plane, based on your training and your experience and you know what you have planned, you know, no skydive really goes up without some sort of plan you at least feel like you're in control of your fate you know based on everything you've learned but when you're in the airplane you know it can get a little routine cuz you spend most of your day in an airplane when you're jumping just riding down to right. altitude. it takes 15 yeah. 20 minutes to get up there but you have no control over what happens so you have emergency procedures that you would perform in the event of an emergency like this like you have decision altitudes like you don't want to exit the plane below a certain altitude. If you're right. above above a certain altitude, you get out and you do this. If you're below a certain altitude, you get out and you do this. But we didn't have any of those options on this jump, which is why it was so crazy. And I mean, I definitely do feel very lucky. This could have very easily gone a different way. You know what I ended up getting out of it was a really awesome story. And it's the kind of experience that you can't buy You don't really even want an experience like this, but once you have it, you're like, okay, I'm definitely filing that away into the part of my brain that makes me who I am. You know, it's like these things that have happened, how how you handled it and how you felt when it happened, all those things kind of go towards, you know, just kind of advancing your progress as a human.
1: Is it something that you like think about often? Is it because, you know, we've been friends for a long time and I can't believe, I mean, may, you must have told me this at some point, <laughs> but <laughs> I feel yeah, like I, I would don't... have remembered if you told me this story, but maybe you just filed it away and something else crazy happened and, you know, it's just, you have a really big filing cabinet.
0: Yeah, maybe just filed it right into the paper shredder.
1: <laughs> it comes up
0: every once in a while in my mind, <laughs> but, uh, Yeah, that's my story. That's my skydiving story, everyone.
1: I love it. I love it. Well, thanks for sharing. That's wild. Yeah, so
0: what do you have? uh, Have you added anything to your content circuit? You've been consuming
1: a lot of stuff? I really haven't. Um, Like I said, cutting wood. We're moving into the Airstream. So we just picked it up today, and we're going to be out um, in just a couple of days uh, doing a campground host thing. I'll I'll have to save uh, some... uh, talking about trailer life and living on the road for another episode. But uh, Bree and I did find this really top-notch show because we really like shows with houses, architecture, just kind of like unique um, builders. I don't know. There's, you know, it's such a huge genre and there's such a huge audience for it. But this one in particular It's uh, Apple TV Plus, I guess it is. I don't know. I I don't usually watch that, but um, you know what I'm talking about? It's like Apple's streaming service. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. TV Plus, maybe. Well, Home is the name of the show, and it is absolutely unbelievable. And I feel like I've seen quite a few of these, like, unique home shows. Uh, You know, there's a great one on Netflix, uh, you know, the most, ama- the most amazing homes or something. I don't remember the name of it. There's so many of these things. But this one in particular, the, there's a few, just to name a few episodes, there's one where this guy in Sweden, I think, built a log cabin in this, you know, specific style that isn't really done anymore and everything has to be perfectly sized. And then he built a greenhouse over the log cabin so his house he has a he has like a old you know 19th century 1800s looking thing inside of a giant greenhouse it looks like the futuristic just unbelievable like it's all lit up at night he's got a garden in there now he's recycling the water to you know the wastewater is cleaned somehow and then it Runs through this irrigation system, so he grows his plants in his greenhouse year-round. Dude, it is unbelievable. And that's just one of the episodes. There's a guy that... So it's works. about, like, home architecture and engineering? Yeah, it's, but it's kind of... A, I, I think the premise more... Because, like, the other shows that we like that are very similar really focus on the homes or the houses, or the buildings. This one in particular, I feel like it tells the story or the different stories of these people that are um, outliers in society in some way. I mean, one of the guys is a science fiction author, and he's also a technology lawyer and he found like a piece of shitty land that nobody wanted in Austin, Texas that was like I don't know some dumping ground for some chemical company and but i mean he built this like scar in the earth and he used the old oil pipeline that was all like smashed and he turned it into this like gorgeous glass like it's almost hidden until you walk down there. And I mean, it looks straight out of uh, a science fiction book. I mean, it's every episode, is, but it really, fo- you know, it focuses on the person and kind of how they became this like outlier or, you know, how they, I don't know, something happened in their past that really kind of opened them up to this idea and they developed it over years. And then they like kind of, you know, started with this amazing, new architectural idea or concept and and I don't know anything about building or architecture but damn I know something really beautiful and amazing when I see it and so far every single episode has just been phenomenal so if you do have uh, access to Apple TV plus definitely check out home I'll I'll probably cover it at some point it's an amazing show that sounds awesome Yeah, yeah it's really cool how about you uh, we just finished our campaign in
0: Pandemic Legacy, which, oh, nice. I talked about that towards the beginning of the show, that one of our first episodes that we were just starting to play that. And, uh, you've played a little bit of Pandemic, right? Like the vanilla game? Yes, the
1: vanilla game.
0: <laughs> so for anyone who's not played Pandemic Legacy, first of all, you should be playing
1: Pandemic Legacy. It is so good. But the, uh, it's a You'd recommend board game. It even though we're all kind of playing, uh, pandemic legacy USA version. It's the fun side of the <laughs> pandemic. Okay. So it's a
0: co-op board game, up to four players, and the basic game is you play as a team working to cure these four diseases, and the the play map or the board is a map of the world with cities that are connected by these travel lines that you can move along, and then each round. City cards are drawn out of this infection pile, and whatever gets drawn, that's where the disease pops up. And then your objective is to travel around, removing these little disease cubes that represent how much disease is present. All the while, you're working towards certain requirements that,
1: that, are, that are needed to cure the diseases. That's like the basic game. Yeah, it sounds very similar to the, the vanilla, as you call it, pandemic version.
0: Yeah, like you start with a few vanilla rounds, and anyone that's never played Pandemic, I I mean, we only did one, but I would recommend like do like five. There's so much to get the hang of. Yeah. The rules are very complicated. You know, it's, I'd say that we probably played with at least one wrong rule for every game until we were like six or seven games in, Mm -hmm. which in the rule book, Which you should have open the whole time you're playing. Yeah, yeah. The rule book that there's actually a section where it says if you mess up a rule, don't worry, just keep going. They they kind of expect that you know because it is so complex. Mm -hmm. But once you kind of get a handle on the game, then you can start the campaign, and the campaign is divided into twelve months, and a month is just one one round of gameplay, and each month these uh, these new gameplay elements or new rule sets. They're all introduced like a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. And then through that, the story starts to evolve. And as you play the legacy elements start to come in, uh, come into the game. And those are things that they they'll permanently change the game. So you'll maybe get like a rule sticker that you put in the rule book. And this says that, you know, when you're when you're playing around now, when you get to this point, you have to do this entirely new thing. And it kind of represents like your abilities as a virus hunting team evolving. You know, you can have permanent structures built on the board. Cities can have riots. Your player characters can be permanently killed off. Just this ton of emergent gameplay. And by the end, you can really read like the game
1: board and see like how your story progressed. It's, and if you it, win after twelve months, you became a certified epidemiologist, and you're sent it, right to the front line of the COVID testing.
0: There are four right. there are four diplomas in a sealed <laughs> package in there that you can only open if you win. But if you <laughs> if
1: you get it, you open them up, and you're like, "Whoa, Harvard!" Inst- instantly right. on Trump's uh, coronavirus task force. <laughs> oh man, a little political,
0: but yes, exactly. That's how they're picking people. Uh, yeah, most board games, you know, like a $15 board game, you might play it five or six times and then just never play it again because you've pretty much got all the candy land you can handle for your life. And I've seen people online complaining that like, oh, you, you play the campaign and then you just basically trash your pandemic game because you've torn up cards and you've thrown stuff out and you've like put stickers on the board. But man, this game, $60, it held us engrossed for two straight months you know, we started playing once a week, and then we started playing every Wednesday and Friday. And then the last three nights, we just played every single night because we wanted to see how it ended. So That's I awesome. would highly recommend Pandemic Legacy. It's great.
1: Yeah, you know, the, the internet has no shortage of people complaining about things. So I would uh, take really, your recommendation. Really, this is the first
0: time I'd uh, come
1: across it. This is my would first take, experience. I'm going to take your recommendation uh, over <laughs> to, over the uh, internet trolls because yeah, well. pandemic, I mean, it, it's it really is just a man. It's fantastic. I've gotten tons of entertainment out of the vanilla version with you know a couple little expansions. But yeah, I'm definitely going to check out Legacy. I'm. We just ordered that. season two like as soon as we finish season one. Nice. Yeah. Does it? Does the next uh, next one come with like a lab coat and a microscope and everything? It's they just assume you're already an epidemiologist. Oh and right, they that makes sense. Comes with.
0: Like an entire chemistry set.
1: <laughs> it's like, whoa, sample Ebola. Jeez. <laughs> oh, crazy. Don't breathe that. <laughs> all right, well, let's uh, take
0: a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll get in some content.
1: Ooh, content.
0: The Content Clearinghouse is brought to you by Best Maps Ever. They make checklist posters for outdoor adventurers who want to see it all. If you want to visit every national park in the United States, Climb every 14er in Colorado or ski every slope in New England. Best Maps Ever posters are the perfect way to track and inspire your quest.
1: Every map is lovingly designed with icons marking each location so you can stick a pin in the icon or color it in with a marker as you check off the areas you've been to. They offer mounting and framing services for maps that are ready for pinning right out of the box or if you prefer to mount the map yourself, there are tips on the website to help you with that. They have a slew of maps relating to protected areas and public lands like state parks, national forests, and even more obscure maps like the National Wild and Scenic Rivers System. So Josh, one of the maps my wife and I have mounted in our camper is the National Parks map. Now it's covered in pins because, well, you know, Bree and I get around. And Best Maps Ever makes our gallivanting around the country even more fun because we can put a pin in the map to prove that we've been there and done that. No one could ever cheat that system, Brett. Well, it is on
0: the honor system. Best Maps Ever does not employ any sort of pin-related security system that will come to your house and check and see if you've actually visited the places you've pinned. (gasps) Since you brought it up, I have uh, the skydiving drop zone map hanging up in my office it's one of the few decorations I have that's not celebrating one of my many athletic achievements. In fact, it's hanging up on the wall right next to my world's most humble man trophy. For all your cartographic needs, visit bestmapsever.com. They've got the best maps ever. Clear it out. Welcome back to the content clearinghouse. Brett, um, you're doing something today that... We have not done before. You're covering a podcast. Is that correct? Podcast on a podcast. It's nice. just like, it's a new it, one.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, um, that I, that very meta idea is similar to playing a game about a pandemic during a pandemic. So, exactly the same <laughs> staying with that vein. Um, I didn't really know how to start this, uh, contentology audio essay. So I decided to take a page out of the Book of Shitty Wedding Speeches. Uh, uh, Webster's, Webster's Dictionary. Dictionary. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they define happiness as a state of well-being and contentment. Doesn't that sound pleasant? It sounds so happy. Yeah, that's why we're all chasing it. We're all, we're all trying to get happier. Um, so, Josh, I want to play a little game What makes you happy? So I'm going to just ask you a question, and I want to tell you if you think it would make you happy. So how about getting a new video game? You know it. Wrong. Oh, no. No, I hate those, I guess. How about drinking a Red Bull? I love it. Nope. What? How about setting a world record in skydiving? It sounds like no. No. That would be good. Cool. No, that That's wouldn't it. make me happy. You're catching on here. Uh, how about becoming an incredibly famous and successful podcaster? <laughs> Boring. But, oh, there you go. Wait, am I supposed to say yes or no? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's it's, a no, Is a terrible game. So here's the thing about this. Um, and this kind of surprises me. So, uh, so bear with me. With these things, they might make you happy for a while, uh, but none of these things are going to keep you happy. So take drinking a Red Bull, for instance. That will give you some temporary hedonic happiness, which is a momentary joy or pleasure. Maybe setting a world record in skydiving will give you a certain level of eudaimonic happiness, which is a type of happiness that refers more to subjective experiences associated with like a meaning or purpose or living a life of virtue, pursuit of human excellence. You get the idea. Something a little bit more in depth uh, than the the quick pleasure of uh, a Red Bull. But pleasures and accomplishments still will only give you happiness for a while. And even then, it's not going to provide as much happiness as you really expect those things would make you feel. So if, I mean, if, uh, for example, if you continue to drink Red Bull after Red Bull, hoping it's going to give you wings, just so you know, it does not do that. Uh, you will probably get diabetes eventually and maybe some heart palpitations, but you're describing the, uh, the addicts road to no longer feeling joy. Right. Exactly. So this is, um, very common and not just with an addict or an alcoholic. I mean, we all to some extent, extent have these drives that are triggered through dopamine or other uh, chemicals in the brain, and you'll experience what's called a hedonic adaptation. So this is an observed tendency of humans to very quickly return to a relatively stable level of happiness. So a baseline, right? Exactly. A baseline. I like to call it the return to meh. My favorite state. (laughs) Right. And the interesting thing about returning to meh, uh, it applies to more significant life changes as well, like setting a world record or becoming a famous and successful podcaster. Like we're uh, almost there already. Um, Hedonic adaptation or the hedonic treadmill is it's very normal. It's a human trait that, like you said, it just brings you back to that baseline despite even major positive events Because our expectations and our desires, they'll rise in conjunction with those positive events that occur. And so what we get is no permanent gain in happiness, just more meh. Uh, So, you know, we're constantly raising the bar. Permanent happiness is always out of reach, just out of reach. And um, in addition to that, our brains are very bad at judging what kinds of things will make us happy. So I'm gonna tell you a story that I basically plagiarized from season 1 episode two of the content I'm going to discuss now this story is so shocking and unbelievable and it's also so well told that it absolutely got me hooked on what is now one of my favorite podcasts which is I will get there oh we're going with the, we're going with the story first oh
0: so dramatic all, all right.
1: right I'm gonna to have to channel my uh, Texas Accent here. Get
0: your blasting pit ready, folks. <laughs> That's
1: right. It was the worst thing that has ever happened to me. <laughs> That's good. How was that? It's real uh, good. Happy to hear that. So this is what Billy Bob said after something happened to him. He was a relatively happy, middle-aged Texan whose life, like his name, had been mostly unremarkable. He was married happily, religious, Family man, working at Home Depot. What do you call this? Living the dream. Am I right? Ltd. Ltd. So, someone like me uh, might say he was hashtag blessed. (laughs) But one summer evening, everything changed. Within months, his marriage had fallen apart. His beloved Barbara Jean, also an unremarkable name, had filed for divorce. He lost fifty pounds and he looked sickly and gaunt. His children say his personality had changed from happy dad to moody, depressive. Less than two years later, after this so far unrevealed event had occurred, Billy Bob locked himself in a bedroom and took his own life. Oh, my God. So what was that event that he called the worst thing that has ever happened to him? Let me guess. Go for did he it. win the lottery? You are correct. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> fucking nailed it. So uh, he won $31 million in the Texas Lottery lotto. <laughs> oh my God. He most certainly prayed for this uh, lucky event to occur, but when it happened to him, it obviously did not make him happier. So my third favorite podcast uh, very smartly points out. I bet you think you that it wouldn't be the case for you because most of us are convinced that making tons of money would feel good, but guess what? Like my round of questioning at that horrible game show with Josh, uh, we're wrong about this. We do not know what's going to make us happy. So here's a couple other significant life events I think anyone would assume might make them happy. Winning the lottery, as we've talked about, achieving a monumental career success, or getting podcaster. In- that's right <laughs> or getting into an ivy league college of your dreams and now is getting time that epidemiologist <laughs> <to> <laughs> diploma from harvard exactly <laughs> from your pandemic legacy board game <laughs> exactly it's not gonna make you happy folks no don't try to win <laughs> that's right uh so now is the time to introduce you to one of my all-time favorite podcasts in the multiverse of content. <gasps> the drama. dare i dare i say edutainment the Happiness Lab with Dr. Lori Santos. Nice. Yeah. Have you given this a listen at all? Um, I've listened to one episode oh, really? because Excellent. you
0: casually mentioned it a few weeks ago. This has been a big
1: part of my life lately. Yeah. I mean, I've been Are listening you hooked for on this for months. Absolutely. I mean, it's, and I'm going to get into why. Awesome. So the very first episode kicks off with that uh, specific happiness goal of getting accepted into an Ivy League school, specifically Yale University, and this is the perfect way to start this podcast off, because guess what? Dr. Lori Santos is a professor at Yale University, and she did not get her diploma from a board (laughs) game like you.
0: But attending her (laughs) class will not make you happy, because she's a harsh taskmaster.
1: She's not going to just give you the A, okay? You're going to have to earn it. That's right. Uh, So right off the bat, I feel like um, it was like a big, good storyteller alert for me by bringing this Ivy League, um, you know, Yale acceptance story right back into her personal backyard And what it made me think of when I see like good storytelling elements within the first two minutes is something like a Malcolm Gladwell. I think we have another Malcolm Gladwell on our hands. Dr. Lori Santos also has amazing curly hair. And I also at that moment realized I have some kind of weird admiration for psychology storytellers with amazing hair. You got a fetish. I don't know if I'd go that far, but (laughs) (laughs) maybe I'll talk to my therapist about it. Anyway, I imagine that for a high school senior with high scholastic goals, getting into Yale is not just a major accomplishment, but it's really the realization of a a long-time dream that takes tons of sacrifice, an insane amount of effort, and only 6% of applicants actually get into Yale. So Dr. Lori Santos, uh, to drive this uh, point home, she plays recordings of students that just found out they are part of that elite 6%. They're excited, they're screaming, they're yelling. I mean, it reminded me of my kind of reaction to my first antenna bass jump. Just that like elation, that unbridled joy. Probably what you did when you uh, got out of the exploded uh, Cessna 206.
0: I was pretty happy then.
1: <laughs> I bet. Uh so once these students start attending college guess what their excitement fades very quickly and the curly haired just the right amount of gray hairs yale professor dr Lori santos she's she saw this happen firsthand so this isn't just an anecdotal observation about fleeting happiness uh, she also goes into the data and in the last five years she found out that the rates of college mental health problems have skyrocketed nationally. So I'm going to throw out some numbers that, I mean, I heard this from the very first few minutes of episode one, and these are pretty disturbing. Over 60% of college students report feeling overwhelmed uh, and overwhelmingly anxious in at least the last year. Over 50% say they felt completely overwhelmed in the past week And rates of depression in 20-year-olds have doubled since 2009. That's pretty crazy, right? I can believe all that. I remember when I was in college, the last
0: year, being so stressed out because I knew just such a massive change in my life was coming. And I just felt like no matter what I had learned, I felt like I wasn't ready for it. And so I was stressed out just thinking about the future and what my life was going to be when I graduated.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, to be very clear because I, these numbers are just like, you know, if you throw out stats, it just maybe not stick, but she repeats this conclusion of collected scientific observations that our country has more than twice the number of young people in serious psychological distress than we did 10 years ago. So this these numbers are on the massive incline. And these statistics uh, from our show, these came out in September 12th, 2019. So this was before a global Damn. pandemic. And I would like to point out that this is the second major economic downturn in the adult life of a millennial like me. You remember 2008, the good old days? Yeah, the... Uh the easy downturn, we <laughs> <Right. all> had. <laughs> so, I um, when I was working on this outline, I was thinking, okay, what was going on in two thousand and eight? Uh, and I remember the the dumbest shit that the president said around times around those times were things like uh, they misunderestimated me or working hard to put food on your family. These, when you're looking, <laughs> <laughs> when you're looking back with, when you're looking back with 2020 uh. eyes, I mean, these were Bush league gaffes. Woo, good. Well, thanks. <laughs> nice pun. Yeah. Oh man. Trump's going to tweet about our show. Uh, so Dr. Santos was horrified to hear these numbers. She wanted to do something to help. So she went digging into more research. And guess what? You're not going to believe this. It is not just college students. That's where these stats were coming from. But she found out that many people feel like happiness is just ever so slightly unobtainable. And I can relate to this. I mean, I'm all the time. I'm like, if I only had hair like Malcolm Gladwell, if I only had a giant beard like... uh, German grand admiral Alfred von Tirpitz.
0: That reference definitely landed for. Me. <laughs> this is I think what you're describing is the absolute definition of first world
1: problems, right? Absolutely. Well, I mean it's it isn't it isn't. I mean this is a problem that doesn't really know socioeconomic status. So we're we're going to get into that, but of course there is an aspect of we shouldn't be complaining about this and that because we we should be grateful we have it so much better than many people in many countries, but that doesn't negate that we're we still have a problem with the happiness and we're going to talk about this. It is the stimulus is not always the problem with happiness; it is the perspective.
0: Mm. Yeah. Oh, by the that. way,
1: that Alfred Von Turpitz joke, I have no idea how that came up in my uh, research for this episode, but I found just, this picture of this guy with an amazing beard. Just one thought, of your fantasy hairs <laughs> that's
0: right. out there. If only I look, had a beard like <laughs> him.
1: Uh, so what What did Dr. Lori Santos do about this? She did what professors do. She decided to develop a class on the science of happiness. She attempted to bring together everything she could, all the best and most up-to-date research and data about the science of happiness and how to achieve it, and she organized it into one convenient package, and this became the class Psychology and the Good Life. And it turns out, her assumption that a lot of us feel like happiness is just out of reach, even if you just made it into Harvard, even if you feel like these are first-world problems, even if you presumably have gray hair, uh, these, these assumptions were spot on. Nearly a quarter of all Yale undergraduates enrolled in the class in its initial year, and it became the most popular class in the history of Yale, and it attracted media attention from around the globe. And the course is now offered online for free. I believe it's under the title the Science of Well Being." But it is taught by Dr. Lori Santos, and I am definitely going to put a link to that in the episode notes. Is that like a a video course? Yeah. Yep. It's offered by Yale on Coursera. Absolutely. Um, And just as an aside, if you are listening on Spotify, all the links and the references we put together in our episode notes to help you continue with your contentology studies. It's a real study. That is a real thing. Uh, I can't get the links to work on Spotify and it's not us. I think it's with the Spotify platform. I heard that might change in the future, uh, but we do put some work into adding links, adding references to the articles, to this happiness course, uh, that we're talking about today. So if you want to check those out, you can also visit our website, cchpod.com, and you can just click on the episode that you listen to, to get all the links that we carefully curate for you our listeners or you can just google shit we do try to take it though beyond just an
0: audio show because i know whenever i'm listening to a podcast and they bring something up like like that happiness course like i would just immediately google it because i'm just you know i listen to podcasts just to kind of be inspired and to you know hear cool stories and Get new ideas for things that I might be interested in. So we really do try to, to put a lot of work into that specifically. Brett does all that for us, but, uh, it does go a lot uh, far beyond the show, so yeah. If I was you're just like us to just, check that out.
1: Yeah, I was disappointed to see you couldn't click on the link really easily in Spotify, and I we do have some listeners using Spotify, and I do listen to some shows on Spotify that are exclusive on there. Um, Same. So I just say you can you can hop on the website, and all the links will be there. So I back to the Happiness Lab. I have not taken the Coursera uh, class. It is. Awesome that it's online and free. I will definitely be taking it uh, this summer, but it takes approximately 19 hours. And I mean, it, it basically is a Yale class offered online for free. So it there's a certain level of dedication to complete it, and I really want to be able to focus my attention on it. But in the meantime, since you, we are... You can do it and then just give me your notes and cheat okay. my way through it. I'll try to turn it into a <laughs> game where you get a diploma at the end. Perfect. Um, but in the meantime, especially since we're in the midst of a global pandemic, I have questions about happiness, uh, specifically how to be happy. And I want those questions answered now. Uh, and so let's start with the obvious. If winning the lottery and using that money to build a doomsday bunker full of rice, beans and TP doesn't really make you happy. Josh, can anything make you happy? I
0: thought video games and Red Bull and skydiving, but I'm guessing it's going to be more something along the lines of personal growth.
1: Well, the good news is that Dr. Lori Santos says putting the course together taught her that happiness is something that all of us can acquire if we go about it the right way and go after the right things. And her podcast, The Happiness Lab, is all about exploring what the right way is and what those right things are. So you can take action right now to improve your well-being. The Happiness Lab is honestly one of the most well-researched and educational podcasts I have ever heard. It comes with, uh, there's interviews, it combines interviews with their friends and colleagues at top universities that all in some way or another specialize in the science of happiness and positive psychology. These episodes are upbeat, they're entertaining, and they're the perfect length for listening to on those walks around the neighborhood you take to show off your mullet mask combo. Uh, or you can catch an episode during those short drives to your doomsday bunker when you got to drop off more toilet paper. Uh, All and the normal things we do these days. That's right. <laughs> Hashtag blessed. Uh, if you're like me, you don't want these tips on happiness. You need these tips. And in my opinion, a podcast just happens to be the perfect format for balancing these digestible, uh, actionable bits of info without getting so in-depth that you forget to, I don't know, pick up canned beans for the bunker. Oh, wait. Shit, hold on. Hey, Siri. Add canned beans to the bunker list.
0: All right. I've added it to your bunker list.
1: All right. There we go. Uh, So as I was saying, (laughs) multimedia joke. (laughs) The podcast is the perfect way to get these happiness tips that we also desperately need. And we need the help because, as I've mentioned, our expectations on what will make us happy are apparently seriously out of whack. We're always hoping that the next work promotion, the next relationship... The other can of beans. That will be the thing that brings us happiness. But again, we are wrong. We are very bad guides for our happiness. We need the science. So I'm just going to touch on a few of my favorite episodes from the Happiness Lab. I already talked about season one, episode two. It's called The Unhappy Millionaire. That's my story about uh, Billy Bob. And in that episode, Dr. Lori Santos also interviews this fascinating clinical social worker and psychotherapist, Clay Cockrell. And uh, he says if he in that episode says, if you have an enemy, go buy them a lottery ticket. If they win, (laughs) their life is going to be really messed up. I mean, this is. You know, it's so antithetical to what our assumptions are. It's crazy because I, you know, I know this and I have still bought a lottery ticket and it wasn't that long ago. I'm sure it was after I listened to this episode. I mean, that's well, let how me, jacked up our expectations are. Uh huh. Do you think
0: that winning the lottery would ruin your life if you weren't playing the lottery out of like, I don't know, like a sense of desperation or need? Like, What if you were already starting as a relatively happy person where even like, say, like during a period like this pandemic where the world feels like it's falling apart and people are losing their jobs and there's a huge economic downturn, but you still feel like a general sense of happiness in your life? Do you think that something like
1: that would still ruin well, it for you? That's an interesting question. I... Um remember this story about a millionaire winner. I'll actually try to find it. I didn't, it's not in my episode notes and I haven't read it in a while, but it's talking about the curse of lottery winners. And to kind of dispel any rumor that, like, oh, the you know, there's some correlation with the type of person that might play the lottery might be the type of person that's not good with their money. I mean, that is a fair kind of hypothesis uh, because if you're, you know, the chances that you win the lottery are very, very slim. So it might not be the best investment of your two dollars. However, there uh, was this story about a lottery winner whose life was ruined, he was bankrupt within a couple of years and he was a millionaire and a very successful business owner before winning the lottery. And if, you know, if you read this, you would be like, "Oh, this this guy is obviously way more financially responsible than I am and knows way more about what they would do the right way." So this is not like some Uh, outlier that this is talking about. I mean, it is an extremely common thing. And the human brain is not wired to receive some
0: giant windfall. Basically. I I mean, it seems
1: like I'm not sure what, what the issue is. And it, it might be a multitude of things. I'm sure it's a multitude of things, but in the context of this episode, I think the discussion is, you know, everybody thinks winning the lottery would make them happy. And, they're almost always wrong about that, and everybody thinks, "Oh, well, it ruins everybody else's life." But I, I would, I would be the one that ends up being happy. I would be the one to know. You know, that's just that like cognitive bias that we have—that like everybody else is a bad driver, but I'm the great driver, right? I mean, it, it's we all have that. <laughs>
0: well, the reason I guessed lottery earlier was because I have also heard like countless.
1: Stories about the lottery curse, you know, like it's it's that is very strange. It it is, and it's you know it's not a curse. It really is like a psychological error. And I think that's what is so interesting about stories like that is we're like, what? How how could somebody win a hundred million dollars and it messes up their life? That's crazy. They never have to work again. They can do anything they want. But if you look at what happens statistically? Most people end up bankrupt. I mean, it's it's pretty insane. But anyway, back to um my boy Clay Cockrell, the psychotherapist um that had that little burn about uh, buying your enemies lottery tickets. So this guy is a super non judgmental person, and this that personality trait of his got his name passed around. Uh among the wealthy and it landed him a pretty sweet gig working with the super rich as a psychotherapist. He says it's the 1% of the 1%. So if you are struggling to find a place to park your yacht for $450 an hour in Manhattan, this guy Clay will do a walk and talk type of therapy treatment with you. And his, his key is that he treats the 1% of the 1%'s problems as real as anyone else's problems. So, I mean, this is just an example of one of the episodes that's just like really fascinating, super entertaining. And I also found a great Vice article about therapists for the very wealthy that goes a little more in depth than Clay Cockrell that I'll link in the notes. I think it's pretty fascinating. Um, But something that he says from his work is that, people when he when he talks about what he does people balk at this idea that the ultra wealthy need a therapist to talk about their lack of adequate yacht parking because we've bought into this idea that if you have a certain amount of money that it you're going to be happy but thanks to the happiness lab they really they they dispel that sort of psychological assumption that we have
0: i think like also reality tv kind of puts this on blast when you watch like these celebrities lives. And it's just like, so dramatic. And there's so many issues. And who knows how much of it is real and how much of it is scripted. But it, a lot, you know, a lot of these people don't seem like the way you would think you would be if you were worth $25 million. You know, you feel like that would solve all your problems. But like, you know, it's like, you hear just crazy celebrity stories about like, they mind breaking and then just like, you know, driving their Ferrari off a bridge or something. Right. And it's not, that's not like uncommon at all in our world.
1: Well, yeah. It wasn't, I mean, it might've been this uh, Clay Cockrell that said, more money, more problems. Yeah. I think that was it. Yeah. Yep. Um, so in another episode, season one, episode three, a silver lining, my favorite Dr. Lori Santos brings us back to the 2012 olympics when gymnast michaela maroney was presented with her olympic medal you might remember this she instantly became an internet meme with her not impressed <laughs> expression <laughs> and i mean it's been what eight nine years i can still picture her annoyed expression now you know what i'm talking about oh yeah oh yeah yep.
0: was a
1: classic uh, oh man so, is Michaela just a, a brat, a rascal that can never be pleased unless winning gold? A rapscallion. <laughs> a hellion. <laughs> so, she actually handled this, you know, um, global memification and embarrassment in incredibly good grace. Uh, she made the expression when she met President Obama, she's talked about it on late night talk shows. Um, I mean, she's actually a really amazing person, and it's super unfortunate that her, you know, this one moment of showing disappointment on her expression was captured and shared around the world and kind of made fun of.
0: That's why they
1: call them defining moments, lady. (laughs) So it also it turns out that she is not an outlier. On this episode, there's many examples of athletes that compare winning second place to suffering a bereavement or athletes even refusing to wear their silver medal because they're so disappointed. A researcher used the expressions of first, second, and third place winners in athletic competitions, um, use their facial expressions to show this psychological pitfall that affects all of us. It is basically the framing or using other reference points uh, that kind of gives us more of a sense of happiness than what our actual circumstances are so kind of the, the way they explain it a silver medalist is looking up and saying to themselves man I was so close to gold I've spent my whole life pursuing this sport I'm you know one of the best in the world but they're they're not the best in the world they're just thinking i was that fraction of a second away from getting a gold now what's interesting what they found from all these facial expressions of these athletes a bronze medalist it turns out is i mean they look they look happier than the silver medalist i mean it's when they're on the podium as soon as they finish the competition and they see their scores i mean it's a really interesting experiment and uh, laurie santos says it's one of her favorite but can i bronze, can i speak to this a little yeah, bit yeah because I, I I knew you'd have a take on this being I, a, I definitely a do competitor, I
0: definitely do. I actually I'll start it off with, uh, I've got a guy in skydiving named Andy who has been basically my inspiration for years. But he told me this joke one time. It was knock knock, who's there? Second place. Second place who? Exactly. Oh man! And, and so he told me that, and that has stuck with me for so long. And what they're saying about gold and bronze, about the the expression, the way you look and the way you feel with bronze, I can totally see them being happier because when you when you earn a bronze, it's basically like you may have just barely squeaked by and you may have felt like you performed above your abilities to get onto the podium. And so you... you, you, A bronze may even feel like they're not even supposed to be there. Like they may have gotten lucky. Exactly. Yeah, gold, it's like you've worked your entire life to get to this point. And then once you earn it, you feel like maybe the, the road is at an end and you feel like you may be a little hollow as far as like what your next objective is going to be. But a silver really does fall right there in the middle. And it it really feels like, you know, you're supposed to be there, but you're just not good enough. And it's like, you're saying about like, you're so close to being best in the world, but you're not best in the world. And it really is like, it's a rough place to land as a competitor.
1: Yeah. And you know, when I think why, Michaela Maroney's expression went viral is we're all sitting at home thinking, you know, girl, you you just got the silver medal. The crowd is cheering for, for you. You are literally one of the best athletes in the world. And you're making that face while you get your medal, but we're not seeing it from her perspective that she has made all of the sacrifices. She's, you know, she's like gotten into the Yale of sports and here she was just, A little and she was i think also what's feeding into this it's not just the silver medal effect but um it's the expectation too she expected to be the gold medalist she was everybody thought for sure but she had a fall she knew she didn't deserve the gold for that competition it was you know one of those flukes that happens at a high level sports competition um but I mean, of course, it's natural to be a little bit disappointed. It's just for all the all the plebs and all the uh, you know non-athletic, non-Olympians. Everybody else, the ninety-nine point nine 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 percent of the world, were like, "You got the silver medal. That's awesome. That's an amazing accomplishment." So I, you know, there's just that um, we just like don't really see that perspective. But I guess you have gotten to kind of understand this effect firsthand. So, like I was saying, uh, the bronze medalist is looking down and they're saying, man, I was just this close to not getting on the podium, not getting any bling. So, this imagined alternative or expectation problem we have is summed up very nicely uh, by Tom Gilovich. He is the, psych- the psychologist that developed this experiment. He says, we don't react to the stimuli that we confront, we react to the meaning that we attach to the stimuli and this has really significant implications that they get into in the episode. Uh, so those are just a few of my favorite chunks of contentology that really stuck with me. Now I am a contentologist, not a psychologist. So I really hope that these little clips inspire you to check out the entire podcast, the happiness lab. Another thing about the show I really found valuable were the special set of episodes recorded and released to help listeners deal with the uncertainty and the anxiety of the age of coronavirus that we're all living in. Uh, That's really interesting. Yeah, They have been awesome. And I feel like whenever I would listen to one, it was something that very specific that I was dealing with. Like I was spending too much time on my phone and, uh, so I was cleaning out my dad's garage and I was like, okay, I'm just going to like put my phone down, not look at the news, listen to a podcast. And of course the episode was called like good screens, you know, good screens versus bad screens, something like that. And it was all about how we can, uh, you know, better mitigate our use and make it a little bit healthier and make it not so, cause with, you know, a lot of unhealthy screen time on my iPhone uh skyrocketed about the time self-isolation started and it's not a coincidence um and she's sorry i just listened to the uh jfk assassination uh podcast on (laughs) last podcast on the left and there was a lot of coincidence i thought there was a scooby-doo voice oh gotcha (laughs) well i'm glad i cleared that up yep so, um, Dr. Lori Santos starts every one of the special coronavirus episodes with, "Whenever I'm confused or fearful, I remember that looking for answers in evidence-based science is always the best way to go." And so, not the that speaks news. to me. Well, I, I know some people might prefer the uh, what's his name, televangelist Kenneth Copeland approach to handling world's problems just loud prayers awkward blowing <laughs> Have you seen that? I didn't even know this was an option, Brett. <laughs> Please expand upon that. Oh, I'll send you that video. <laughs> I should probably like I'm sure link I it. thought everybody had seen that. You haven't seen Let's that? Let's link uh, it. He blows the coronavirus away. Nope, haven't seen oh, this. Oh, you're about to see the best content of your life after we It'll finish recording. Just through your phone. <laughs> um so you know, some people might prefer that. Uh, I, I want to hear from the Yale professors of the world, like my curly-headed-haired hero, Dr. Lori Santos. You so whether you want to learn a <laughs> what? <laughs> you love her. I really do. Uh, her and Malcolm Gladwell, my hair psychology heroes. So whether you want to learn about conquering your nerves or the stoic philosopher's practical approach or the amazing new research about mindfulness meditation, or why giving money away instead of treating yourself makes you happier. To answer any of those questions, check out the happiness lab with Dr. Laurie Santos. It is the perfect podcast for these uncertain times. And remember if you win the lottery, give Josh and I the money science says you'll be happier. So you're welcome.
0: (laughs) That is great (laughs) advice.
1: Absolutely. So, is there anything else you wanted to uh, touch on before we wrap up to go listen to some more Happiness Lab?
0: No, I think that is awesome. I've, like I said, I've listened to one episode off of your uh, mention of it a few weeks ago. But what this, uh, what you covering a podcast, did for me was it inspired me to start planning out covering another podcast in the future, which I won't uh, reveal here because I don't want to. Don't want to blow the surprise, but um I have started outlining one of my favorite shows that's uh you know it's it's like of a similar production value of the uh the happiness lab. So it's not too like two jackholes just chatting at each other like this show is. <laughs> yeah. It's like a really nice NPR style produced show. So I'm gonna cover that in
1: the in the future uh based on your inspiration of doing this material. Excellent. Yeah, I can't wait. I, I do feel like a podcast is a little more difficult to cover than, um, say, a, a book or a movie. I mean, a book, obviously, could could go... It could be a very long book, and it's very difficult to reread a novel um, in preparation for the show. But it's still, like, one thing. Whereas a podcast can be so many different things and stories. Um, and, it, you know, it's something that I really like about The Happiness Lab... Uh, is it really has one cohesive goal. I mean, it's trying to give you real tips, actionable tips, and fascinating information and anecdotes. Um, And really, the goal is to dispel these uh, misguided assumptions that we all have uh, that are perfectly normal and to help us uh, use the evidence-based science to find ways that actually work. Um, And if only we could have given Billy Bob the happiness lab podcast. Uh, Things might've been different. So it's definitely worth checking out.
0: Add it to your list. People sounds like a fantastic option.
1: Well, all right. Don't, uh, don't forget to subscribe. Check back next week for some more excellent content And uh, if you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review. It really helps us out since we're a new show. And we really appreciate you listening to the Content Clearing House. And also check us out on uh, Facebook and Instagram at the Content Clearing House. Thanks so much for listening.
0: Content Clearing House. That's called branding.